morning, church. It is great to worship together, both online and in person here. So thank you so much for worshiping with us. Isn't it great to worship Jesus? Amen. Good. Glad y'all are awake. Glad you were worshiping, for sure. And thank you. Thank you, Justin. Justin's been leading us since we came inside. You've been doing a great job. Uh, I just appreciate you. Appreciate your heart for Jesus. And yeah, for sure. You can give him a hand. Appreciate you. And uh, church, we've had a great week this week. We had our Christmas party on Wednesday. You may have seen some Charlie Brown characters out there and wondering what in the world's going on in my church. Um, if you cruise through here in the evening, uh, you'll be able to bring your kids through, hear the Christmas story, and watch some of those characters get lit up. And so if you're watching online, just check out our address on the website and we'll do that. Also, we've got coming up, mark your calendars on Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve services. They're on Christmas Eve. So if you can't figure that out, you can see one of the ushers on your way out. They love to help you in lots of ways in life. And uh, there are three times. One of them's filled up already. You'll hear more about that at the end of the service, but you can sign up for them. You've got an RSVP. You must have a ticket to come um, to be able to be a part of that. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Um, so you can RSVP right now. And if you pull out your phone, I'll think you're taking notes for the sermon. So it's totally fine. You can get your tickets right now. But today what we're going to do is keep going in our series called Delivering Hope. You saw the video just there. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Amen. And he was delivered to us. That's the Christmas story, talking about him coming to this earth. And that's where our hope is ultimately found, is in him. And not just a story that's told about his life and him being born, but what he did for us when he died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he gives us hope. And so we're going to look at today another passage of Scripture that talks about the hope that we have in Christ in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so if you want to get there ahead of time, you can go there right now. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at specifically verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read a little bit more around that just as we dive into the passage. But something I've been learning recently is this. That when you experience something you've never experienced before, oftentimes you could ask questions you've never been asked before. I was driving in the car with uh, my daughter the other day, and we were cruising, just kind of a mundane trip, a routine route uh, that we go all the time down a, a road that wasn't one of the main roads here, just a two-lane road, uh, just between the church and my house. I live about five minutes away from the church, and we're cruising on this road, not thinking much of it. It's not a country road. But it's not abnormal for me to see animals, deer, rabbits, you know, squirrels, whatever, on this road. And so I didn't think much of it when I'm driving down the road, and I see off to the side there's some crows or vultures or something that are eating some carcass over there. I didn't think much of it until one of the vultures stepped into the road moments before I was about to meet them. And I thought in that moment, like, I don't, I, I think they're gross, like I don't like vultures, but I don't have any agenda against them. Part of God's creation, they fulfill a purpose. I was trying to figure out a way not to hit this vulture. And so I looked to the left, there was a car coming the other direction. I couldn't swerve that way. To the right was a big ditch. I didn't want to, you know, roll my car and us die, so I didn't care that much about the vulture, so I didn't go that way. I look in the rearview mirror. I thought if I hit my brakes, I could cause an accident, so instead I just looked, and in the moment, you can judge me if you want to, I just went, fly, fly. Like, I didn't even yell it. I was just like, come on, just do it. Would you just do it? Because birds have this, like, innate ability to sense danger, and they've got Superman powers. Like, they can fly, and so I'm like, fly, fly. He didn't fly. He kind of jumped, and then, boom, we hit it. My daughter wasn't paying any attention. And she was like doing her nails or something over there. She's like looking down. She looks over at me. She said, what'd you do? I, go, I just hit a vulture. And then she asked me, did you just hit a kid? It's like, no. And hit a kid? Like some kid out in the road here. And like that wasn't a kid. And then like to convince her, like in my head, I'm thinking, I got to show her like I'm not guilty of murder. And so we had to turn back around. But then in my head, I'm thinking, oh, what's she going to see? Is this going to be traumatic? I don't know if I want her getting out of the car. Long story short on all that. The bird was dead, okay, when we got back. But then I didn't know what to do. And so I've got questions. So I Google, because Google's got all the answers, right? And so I Google, is it illegal to kill a vulture? It is. 
So now I'm like, now what do I do? I called 911. 911, what's your emergency? Well, it's not an emergency, it's over. Uh, I hit a bird. It was a big bird, not that big bird, but it was a big bird. <laughs> I think it was a vulture, maybe a crow, like I'm hoping in that moment. So then they start asking me questions. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Is your car damaged? No, my car's fine. They never asked anything about the bird. Bird wasn't okay. They transferred me, transferred me to NCDOT. NCDOT gets on the phone. I think, all right, here's where it comes. All right, here's what happened. Where are you located? All right, now they're coming to get me, right? I'm telling the location. And he said, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. You want me to wait right here? No, you can leave. I can leave. Am I in trouble? Nope. Okay. Didn't think anything of it. A couple days later, I have a conversation with my daughter. Different conversation. Didn't have anything to do with the bird. I said, come over here, honey. We got to talk. It's Ava, our 13-year-old. She goes, Dad, are you getting arrested? <laughs> now, I don't know if you ever get asked that by your kids. That's an abnormal question at my house. They're not usually asking me if, I'm gonna, if I hit a kid. They're not usually asking me if I'm going to get arrested. Here's what I realized. When you experience things, you don't always experience. You get asked questions, you don't always get asked. Now, we're living in a unique time, aren't we? Like, I, I'm, I'm fed up with this word, unprecedented. <laughs> Every time you hear it, like on the news, some bad news is about to come. Doesn't matter if it's a football coach, uh, a political person, a pastor. Like these are unprecedented times. Oh no, <laughs> what's about to happen? All that word means is it's something you haven't experienced before. And I shared with you last week as we're doing this series on hope that hope's at an all-time low. Before the pandemic happened, uh, Princeton did a survey, and they believed that, that in America we're experiencing an epidemic of hopelessness. I shared with you during this pandemic that we've been experiencing that the U.S. Census Bureau did a survey of everybody, and uh, not everybody, I didn't get called, but lots of people, and they said that 48% of Americans said that within seven days, they had felt down, depressed, or hopeless. And, and do you know the Bible actually says when it talks about our hope, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, those of you who were singing those songs out like, I love him, like that, that's my savior, it's not just like songs that I know I grew up with, it's like, I know the, the person behind those songs, Jesus himself. That you're supposed to have a hope that's so attractive, so enticing, that people would actually ask you about it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I just wonder for you as we walk through this passage, who's asking you about your hope? Because people are experiencing things they've never experienced before. Maybe they'll ask you questions they've never asked before. If you got your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. In 1 Peter... What's happening here, everybody agrees that there's suffering taking place, uh, some form of persecution. The book's written about 30 years after Jesus has been on this earth. And so Jesus' feet, the last time they touched this earth, he was on the Mount of Olives, he's overlooking Jerusalem, and he says to his disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. They were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, to his ministry, to his death, to his resurrection. And he's saying to them, you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Everywhere you go, the uttermost parts of the world, you're going to talk about what you've seen, what you've heard, the good, the Noel, the good news. That not only did this story happen, but it can transform your lives, change your story. Amen? Amen. But this is 30 years after that. So some of these people never seen Jesus. It's like us. They love him, but they haven't seen him. Do you love him? That might be worth it for the sermon for you, just to, to reflect on that question. Do you love Jesus? Because listen to what he says at the beginning of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. We, we sang about this. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How do you have unspeakable joy? How do you have inexpressible joy? Well, if you go up a couple verses in chapter 1, and in verse 3 it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope comes ultimately from Jesus' resurrection, not just his birth. Lots of babies born. He was born, he, he was born lived a perfect life, died on the cross, then rose from the dead, defeated death. That's why we have hope. Amen? And so then he's writing to these folks. First part of the book, chapters 1 and 2, are really about maturity in Christ and what it is to grow in Christ. But the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, starts preparing people for persecution. Now, I don't think they're actually experiencing severe persecution at this point. And I'll tell you why in just a minute when we read a verse. Because there comes a point about 64, 67 AD, where Nero is in charge, and he starts killing Christians, uh, burning them at the stake to light his backyard while he has a party, and throwing animal skins on people, and running them through the streets, and having dogs chase them, and that's like, that's persecution. They're being called enemies of the state, and they're being killed. I don't think that's happening yet, but they're before that, where they're being marginalized. They're being overlooked. They're being mischaracterized, and and Christians have experienced that all throughout history. We experience that now. There's people that, that think things about us because we're meeting together today, not just in person, but just in, talking about Jesus. So I'm not talking about mass, no mass, and politics and all that stuff. I'm just talking about Jesus. And so what we're, what we're talking about here is they're experiencing what we experience. Oftentimes people have mischaracterations about Christians because some people have met people that claim to be Christians that don't act like Jesus. Sometimes they believe what they hear on the news, that the evangelicals are this, and whatever gets characterized there doesn't have anything to do with what the Bible says. Sometimes they meet genuine Christians, and we are called to be countercultural. And so sometimes just by our not doing certain things, we're condemning the world around us, and they don't like that. So we get marginalized and pushed off to the side and mischaracterized. And that's what these people are experiencing, but the big stuff's coming. Now listen to what Peter says to them. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Now, if they're being nailed to crosses and burned at stakes, do you, how do you think they're going to answer this question? Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? If Nero's doing that, I promise you, everybody who reads that verse is going, uh, Nero? But Peter's implying here, nobody. Like, if you live a good life, people aren't against a good life. But then he says this, he realizes it happens. Jesus promised it would happen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, it will happen, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I don't know how long you've been around church. Some of you might be your first time here today, might be just tuning in online for the first time today. Uh, but my experience with Christianity is that 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is the most popular verse in the book of 1 Peter. And what happens is somebody will read that verse, say, always be ready to give a defense, and they'll talk about that word defense, and it means apology, and that doesn't mean like I'm sorry, it means like apologetics, the academic word for it, and somebody will read that verse and say, you need to tell people about Jesus and have the substance to back up your faith. That's not a bad thing. Those are true things. They're in the Bible. The Bible says that we're supposed to go and tell people, go make disciples. You're supposed to be witnesses. Problem is, that's not what this verse says. This verse says that people are going to come and ask you. And what you're defending is not your faith. They're not asking you about your faith. They're not asking you about your marriage. They're not asking you about your new haircut. They're not asking you about your Christmas lights. They're not asking you about your investment strategy. They're asking you about hope, which implies that your hope is so enticing, it's worth asking about. Have you ever been asked about anything, anything in your life? Have you ever been enticed by anything in your life? Probably have. Most of you have gone to somebody's house and maybe you're on a diet but they've got a dessert out. 
And I mean, you've got to be a good guest, so you might want to partake there. Those pretzels that are covered in chocolate, they don't really count, right? I just keep popping them in. They don't count. I hope they don't count. They keep eating them. It's enticing. Remember on Facebook, you're scrolling through, and you're, you're like, I don't know what you're doing. You're killing time if you're on Facebook anyways, but you see some headline. It entices you. You click on it. I get that all the time. I saw this week, I saw a headline for a, a town in Oklahoma that had a 40-foot-tall leg lamp in the middle of their town. Chickasaw, I think, is that how you say it? An Oklahoma friend, Chickasaw, Chickasaw? I don't know how you say it. But if you're from there, we love you, okay? I'm not saying anything bad about you. But I, I, So I clicked on it. I read the article. And the guy that was in there is a city commissioner or treasurer or something like that. He said, I came up with this idea. I said that we should build a 150-foot leg lamp in the middle of our town. It'll make our town a destination. When he said that, I thought, oh, <laughs> I don't think I'm coming to your town because you have that. But you must have nothing else there if that's what's going to make you a destination. Love you. Hope you keep watching. Don't click off. Uh, but I was intrigued, enticed enough to click on the article. And for those of you who are like, a leg lamp? What are you talking about? It comes from the movie The Christmas Story. They had it on a box. It said Frigile on the front of it. There must be a lot of Italians in that town. I don't know. But they had it up there. And so this big leg lamp there, that was interesting enough for me to click on it. But I'm not going to go to their town. And so God doesn't want anyone to perish. Peter says that as well. He wants them all to come to a place of repentance. He knows what's going on in their hearts. We're at an all-time low in hopelessness. And you're his headline. Who's asking you about your hope? Do you have a hope that's enticing? Because that's what this passage is talking about is an enticing hope. And it describes it. And here's the first thing that we see about is that an enticing hope produces eternal endurance even when everything else fails. An enticing hope produces eternal endurance even when everything else fails. We go back to the passage and it said in verse 14, uh, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. Now what's interesting here is that Peter is actually taking a verse. So this is 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. He's taking a verse from 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And he's now applying it to these people. The verse is from Isaiah chapter 8 that he's quoting. And so to really understand what he's saying here in 1 Peter, you've got to understand what's going on in Isaiah. In Isaiah, what's happening is the people were afraid because they thought two nations were going to come over and take their nation. And so they're going to lose their king, Ahaz. They were going to lose everything they were hoping in. And he tells them, don't be afraid. Listen to how he says it in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, we'll put the verse up on the screen. It says this, do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Literally, the do not fear what they fear can be translated, their fear, do not fear. And let me ask you this. What does the rest of the world fear? Now, there's surveys every year about this. And they'll say spiders and death and just public speaking and like all these things. But, but if you watch how people live, you know what people fear? They fear losing the thing they hope in. Because the thing you hope in is what's ultimate in your life. And if you take that away, you take away hope, you're in trouble. And so I'm going to apply today's message right now at the beginning. A lot of times we'll teach through a passage and then we'll talk about it and see what it means and then talk about what do we do as a result. But let me tell you the application first of all. So if you're like, if you're like a young person, say you're a student, middle school, high school, college age. What do most people think is ultimate? What are most people hoping in at that stage of life? It's, it's other people. What do they think of me? Friends. Maybe followers on social media. What if? Student, you lost all those things, but you didn't lose your hope. Someone might ask about that. 
one of that, maybe you're, you're about to get married or you want to have kids at some point or you got young kids and we live in such a kid-centric world right now where people, everything revolves around kids and they, they become ultimate. We got dreams for our kids. We try to accomplish our lives through our kids and all that idolatry that happens that I'm not endorsing. It's just true what happens. And so in our culture, what if you couldn't have kids or you had a kid and you lost a kid or that kid had a disability and they're never going to be able to fulfill all the things everybody else says they're supposed to do? but you didn't lose your hope because your hope wasn't in your kids, they might ask about that. Or, I don't know if you've picked this up or not, but you don't have to be a big you know, sociologist to figure out that we live in a pretty driven culture. Whether you work at a hospital or a university or a local company, a startup company, a big company, a scientific company, a research development company, financial investment company, or you're a teacher, like wherever you're at, there's always these, you gotta get to the next level, you gotta do the next thing. And you climb the corporate ladder is one phrase that people will use for that. But what if you felt like God called you to do something that didn't put you into that spot? And other people look at you, or maybe you lose all your money, or you lose your job, but you don't lose your hope. And other people look at you, they must not be hoping in what I'm hoping in, because if I was lost all that, then I would lose hope, and they seem to still have, they might ask you about your hope. So how can that happen? Here's how it happens. This is the key to understanding this first point is if you're going to have a hope that endures, then the object of your hope must be eternal. If you want to have enduring hope, the object of your hope must be eternal. And the passage tells us that means it must be Jesus Christ. Look at the passage. Before he talks about anybody asking, it's not just like, oh, these are hopeful, these are really happy people, and they must have hope. No, he tells us in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. That's the key to the passage. Always being prepared, so the person who does that, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that's in you. And so the key is there, what it said there, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord is holy. I like how the New American Standard Version says it. The New American Standard Version put up on the screen says, but sanctify, that word sanctify is a church word, means set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does that mean? What does, that, what, does the, what does the word Lord even mean? That's a word that we throw around at church, and then maybe every once in a while you watch a British movie, a British movie, and you'll be watching it, and they'll say something like, yes, my Lord. You're like, well, they just call them Jesus? No. It's just a title of respect. It's like how we might say, yes, sir. And so it's, it's, a, it's attributing respect to someone, authority to someone. They may have authority over you. You say, hey, your boss, yes, sir. Yes, my Lord. In fact, one of our uh, pastors is British. Uh, he's uh, Pastor Scott Mason's our outreach pastor, and he actually came to me this week and told me that he and his wife, his wife had entered this contest, but they won a piece of property in Scotland. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, it's a 10 by 10 parcel. And I was like, that's worthless. Like, why are you doing that? And, and then he says to me, he said, but it, it gives us, if you own property in Scotland, you can change your titles. I said, what are your new titles? And he said, well, Ashley is my lady, Ashley Mason. I said, what's your title? He said, Lord, Scott Mason. I goes, yeah, I'm not calling you that. I'll call Ashley that, but I'm not calling you that. Three days later, he comes into my office. He shows me this deed on his phone. He's like, oh, they're going to send us this deed. Lady Ashley Mason, Lord Scott Mason. I was like, yeah, I'm still not calling you that. Like, they can call you whatever they want. I'm not calling you that. So he's not claiming that he's the Lord when he has that. And, and what will happen in the Bible is, as you're reading through the Bible, you'll see people call Jesus Lord that don't believe in Jesus. In fact, when we started this series, we looked at a passage of Scripture in, in Luke chapter 17, 10 lepers. They all called him Lord, but they didn't bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. But what you see is in the Bible, after the resurrection of Jesus, when the, the title Lord is attributed to him, it is calling him God, that he is deity. 
And so you see, like, uh, maybe you've heard the story of Thomas. He's oftentimes referred to as Doubting Thomas because he said what we would all say. People are like, he, he, Jesus raised from the dead, and all of them saw it, and you didn't see it. You'd be like, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. And then Jesus appears to him, and do you know what he says as soon as Jesus appears to him? John chapter 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. And from then on, what you see is that title, Lord, equals he's God. Jesus is God. In fact, the passage that, that Peter's quoting in Isaiah chapter 8 calls Yahweh, the God of Israel, Lord, in that passage. And here it says Lord and Christ, and Peter's saying Jesus is God. In fact, Peter, when he preached in Acts chapter 2, and he declared to all the people there in his bold faith about Jesus Christ, he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, you just killed God. You see, it is that he has authority. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, before he gives us our marching orders to go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're going to baptize people next week. You want to be baptized? Let us know. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that we've commanded you. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you know why? Philippians chapter 2 tells us why. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that we should have the same attitude as Jesus as his followers. And he humbled himself. He didn't hold on to that he was deity, but he became the lowest servant, the lowest form of servant. He became obedient to death on a cross, a criminal's death, even though he committed no sins. And so Philippians chapter 2 says this in verses 10 and 11. It says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me tell you something. Jesus is Lord. Amen? He is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of the living. He's the Lord of the dead. He is the Lord, King of kings and Lord of Scott Mason. He's the Lord of lords. And that means no matter how much authority you have here on this earth, Jesus has authority over you. The question is, is he your Lord? Meaning, is he ultimate? Is he the one calling the shots in your life? And let me tell you something, if you're a follower of Jesus, so you're singing those songs because you love Jesus, not just because there are words on a screen. You're here because you want to know more about Jesus. You're going to be encouraged in your faith. You read this, and you're like, I haven't seen him, but I love him. He was at least Lord in your life at one moment. Because the Bible said he had to be for you to, for you to be, because to be a Christian doesn't mean you show up at church. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you do certain things, vote certain ways, acts, don't say certain words, and don't, you know, don't drink certain drinks. Like it doesn't, sometimes we get all these crazy ideas about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means you're a follower of Jesus. That means you've been saved from your sins. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. That's the promises to the people who do that. No one else, just them. So at least at one point, Jesus has been Lord in your life. Here's the bad news. Our hearts drift. And we may have at one point said, Jesus, you're Lord. And we still want him to be Lord of our salvation. We still want him to get us into heaven. But we don't want him to necessarily be Lord of our everyday. And so we want him to be Lord of eternity, but just not the Lord of the everyday. And our hearts drift, and these other temporary things become ultimate in our lives. Whether it's our family, it can be good things. Our ministry, our jobs, those aren't bad things. Those are gifts from God. But we make the gifts the ultimate thing, and it's a temporary thing. And here's the danger. When you have a temporary thing as the ultimate thing in your life, your hope is fleeting. Because that thing can be taken away by circumstances, just by time because of that, by the nature of it, that it is temporary, it can be taken away, and then you can lose your hope. But if you want enduring hope, the object of your hope must be eternal. Because if you have a temporary thing and you lose hope, that's dangerous stuff. 
I think it was Chuck Swindoll that first said, I've seen several people quote it. I know it wasn't me, so I'm going to attribute it to Chuck Swindoll. I made this observation. He said, a person can live about 40 days without food. <laughs> Some of us put a few pounds on during the uh, pandemic, so we might be able to go 45. Uh, he said, about 40 days without food. About three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only seconds without hope. Losing hope is dangerous. It can be deadly. That's why people commit suicide, because they lose hope. That's why businesses close. No more hope for this business. That's why marriages end. No more hope for this marriage. Losing hope is dangerous. One story I read, I've been just, re just reading about hope in my own, just learning and wanting to grow and having more hope in my own life. And one story that I've read in multiple places was told by a guy named Harold Kushner. You can look it up. Harold Kushner was a prisoner of war uh, during the Vietnam War. He was there for five years, and he told a story about another prisoner of war. He described the guy as a, a strong, bold, brash, 24-year-old Marine who made a deal with the prison guard at the prison camp that they were at. And the prison guard told him, if you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to let you out. And so he became obedient. He started doing everything they told him to do. In fact, he became the leader of the thought reform group. Think about that. You're a prisoner of war, and they're telling you, we want you to teach everybody else how to think different. They're not telling you how to think truth. They're trying to tell you about, they want to kill you. And so they're telling you, he's leading, he's sold out. He's leading this thought reform group. But then it becomes evident that no matter what he does, they're not letting him out of here. So listen to what Kushner said. Kushner says, when the full realization of this took hold, he became a zombie. He refused to do all the work. He rejected offers of food and encouragement. He simply lay on his cot, sucking his thumb. In a matter of weeks, he was dead. The cause of his death? Hopelessness. In fact, doctors have actually diagnosed people who die as prisoners of war with give up-itis. It sounds like a made-up thing. Like, you can go read about it. That's actually a thing. And when you give up, when you lose hope, it's deadly. When you have eternal hope, how do you have eternal hope? When Christ is set apart as Lord in your heart. It's from the heart that's the core of everything else that happens in our lives. When Christ is set apart as ultimate, when he's set apart as Lord, nothing that can happen in this world, even when everything else fails, you still have hope. I remember being with some of our missionaries a few years ago in Panama. They were opening up a, an orphanage. It was an amazing story of how God brought all this together, but they opened the first ever orphanage for special needs kids in Panama. And so my wife and I went down there for the dedication just to celebrate with them and I was going to say a few words and pray. And remember when we sat down, there was a couple sitting behind us. And when I met them, I realized I had been praying for them. I'd been praying for them because they experienced this terrible, I didn't know who they were. I had never met them in person, but just words and just different Christian friends I had told the story of this terrible tragedy they experienced. Tragedy was, I won't give you all the details, but they had lost a two-year-old daughter. It was terrible what happened. Now, here they are. They didn't have anything to do. They, didn't have, they weren't connected to this orphan. They were just there to celebrate with somebody else. Why? Because everything in the world would say that you should be in despair. You should be mad at God. And here we are praising God and celebrating this thing. And I'm a believer. And I was enticed by their hope. I want to know more about your hope. Because they had an eternal hope. They loved their kid. They grieved. But you know how they grieved? They didn't grieve as someone who has no hope. Because you can lose, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, it doesn't mean it's not difficult, and they're still now, years later, serving Jesus in Panama, trying to connect people to Jesus for life change. They have an eternal hope, has eternal endurance, even when everything else fails. That's enticing. Another thing we see about enticing hope is that it's courageous, it's got courageous faith. Enticing hope produces courageous faith, even when everybody else cowers in fear. And we saw that in verse 14. In verse 14, Peter said, but even when you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
I don't know that I have to spend a bunch of time saying that we live in a pretty fearful time. People are afraid of a lot of stuff right now, and we don't have to do all the surveys and figure out all the things, but people are, a lot of the stuff we're afraid of, I was thinking about it this week, as I was reading just about fear and what people are afraid of, it's a lot like the weather. I don't mean you're afraid of the weather, but what I mean is, and especially if you live here in North Carolina, you live in other places, you might not make sense, but listen to this. Oftentimes the weather predictions are over-exaggerated and inaccurate, right? Like think about hurricane season. It's going to be a hurricane, so we all rush out and we buy bottled water. It's a water storm, people, by the way, just FYI. But then what happens is they go on the news and there's nothing, nothing happens. Almost all the time here in Raleigh, nothing happens, right? There's like sprinkling in the background. Some guy like has a fan that knocks his hat off from off to the side. It's like, that's national news in that moment. And and right now, what's going to happen? Like, we're, we're, you know, hoping, some of you are praying for a white Christmas. Maybe you're from, like, Jersey or something. You've got a Pittsburgh Steelers fan over Maybe you're a Pittsburgh, and you're like, I want white Christmas. I'm dreaming. You know, you're singing it. Better than that, I hope. And you're, you're ready. But then as soon as the weather forecast says it's going to snow, we're all going to buy all the bread and milk. Like, it's just going to panic. That's what happens here in the South, right? I was thinking this week, I wonder, I wonder if the bread sales guy's having a hard time. Because all these gluten allergies and everybody's gluten-free in their diets and like low-carb and all that stuff. And so maybe he goes to WRL and ABC and he's like, hey, listen, I'll give you a deal if you'll just say it's going to snow. And then we go buy all the bread and he's like, bonus check, here you go. And I don't know, maybe not, WRL, no offense, WRL meteorologist, but, but, but maybe that's what's happening. Because you know we're all going to panic and nothing's going to happen. I'm going to tell you, I'm from Michigan. The, the little flakes that come from the sky, they're water. You can drink them, eat them. The yellow stuff is not lemonade, kids. But the other stuff's good, all right? But we're afraid of it. It's irrational that we're afraid of this. But we are. One article I was reading used the illustration that what we're really afraid of is the unfamiliar. Because we'll do things that are incredibly dangerous and we don't think twice about it. But then we're scared of things that aren't really that dangerous at all. And the illustration they used was driving on the expressway and talking to a stranger. And they said, we don't think twice about driving on the expressway. Think about it. You can, some of you driving on the expressway this week, 540, you're going 70 miles an hour next to a dump truck or a semi-truck, and you don't know anything about the guy driving that truck. He could have stole it. You don't know if he slept the night before. He could be sleeping right now. You don't know until you get next to the truck. But you're just cruising along, you listen to your music, whatever. But if I said to you, I want you to go tell somebody about Jesus today, somebody would be like, whoa, what are they going to do? Like, really, you talk to a stranger, it's not going to be... But if we don't usually do that, then it's scary to us. Here's the difficulty. You come to a passage like this, you're talking about courageous faith. To step out by faith is oftentimes into the unfamiliar. So how do we do that? I think the passage tells us. It said there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, to not fear, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Remember, he's quoting from Isaiah. And I already told you the context in Isaiah is that people are afraid they're going to lose what's ultimate. They're going to lose what they hope in. They're going to lose their king. They're going to lose all their power. They're going to lose their material possessions. Let me read to you the whole verse because I think it tells us the answer to how to increase our hope and to decrease our false fears. It says, do not call conspiracy, Isaiah 8, 12 to 13. Do not call conspiracy all that his people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Okay, you told me not to do it, but you didn't tell me how. Oh, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy, like we talked about, set apart Christ as, as holy in our hearts. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Here's what he's saying here, is that worship is the antidote to fear. Oftentimes we have false fear because we have a false view of God. We have a false view of God, we have false things that we fear. The way that Jesus says it in the New Testament is this, don't fear man who can kill the body, fear God. He can throw you into hell. 
So he says here, he says, fear God. Why? We should have a fear of God because he's not like us. He is other. He is holy. He is transcendent. Yes, at Christmas time, we're talking about he came. He dwelt among us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's both. And a lot of times we get this false view of him. And then what happens is our hearts drift. We get these other hopes. And we start becoming afraid of losing those false hopes because we have false fears. And say, what you need is worship, because here's what worship is. A lot of times we think worship is those 15 or 20 minutes we sing songs before the sermon. That time's great. It should be an expression of things that are happening in our heart. Here's what real worship is, though. It's a heart that gets expressed in those song moments and through any faith moment in our lives. If you've been around our church for a little while, you've heard me define worship as this. It's when you see God accurately and you respond appropriately. So when we design these worship services, the sermon I'm going to preach, the songs Justin's leading, uh, any testimonies that ever get given, baptisms, communion, whatever, all those pieces, the goal of those things is to present God accurately to you. Then our hope is the Holy Spirit moving in our midst is that then you respond appropriately to him. Because that's what we see as worship throughout the Bible. There is singing in the Bible, but you see lots of worship and lots of, like Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God and he's seeing God for who he is and the angels are singing holy, 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 Isaiah's now like, this is awesome. Let's take a selfie, God. He'd be gone if he'd done that. Do you know what he does? He says, woe to me. I'm a sinful man. I'm a man of unclean lips. He repents. He sees God accurately. He responds appropriately. Peter, writing this passage of Scripture, one of my favorite stories about Peter is in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. You can look it up. And what happens is Jesus has been doing a bunch of ministry, but he's tired. And they get in a boat. It's evening, so it's dark outside. If you try to picture this, they're going out on the Sea of Galilee. There's mountains surrounding all the Sea of Galilee. Storms come quickly. They go out on this boat. This terrible storm comes. Professional fishermen are panicking. They think they're going to die. And they say to Jesus what we oftentimes say to God in our times of trial. Don't you care? He was sleeping because Jesus is a man like us. Because Jesus got hungry like us. Jesus got tired like us. Jesus is tempted in every way, just like us. So he's sleeping. And Peter says, don't you care? And Jesus gets up and he says, shh, be still, storm. And glassy smooth. There's no more storm. Then, and this is the key to this passage, then, after the storm is done, it says, they were terrified. Do you know why? Because Jesus got hungry just like them. Jesus got tired just like them. Jesus was tempted just like them. But Jesus was not just like them. The next part of the passage says, even the wind and the waves obey him. Implied, so should we. Because he is Lord. And so what happened in that boat at that moment was worship. Because they saw him accurately, and then they respond, even the wind that we should obey him. You see it in other places throughout Scripture. You see people see God accurately, they respond appropriately. Sometimes the response is fear. Sometimes the response is repentance. Sometimes the response is hope. Always the response is faith. You want to put it in the Christmas context, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come into this town and they're asking, where's the one born king of the Jews? We mentioned this last week. People are out, I don't know what to think. Herod's going to get mad. They send him to Herod. Herod doesn't know. They bring in Bible teachers. The Bible teacher goes in Bethlehem. They go. No one else goes. Crazy. The king of kings, the Lord of lords being born. And these guys are the only ones that go. <laughs> you wonder, sometimes your friends won't come to church with you. They didn't even go see Jesus. <laughs> and so they go. 
And you know what happens when they see them? They worship. But it doesn't say anything about them singing. Like maybe you could make it up. They're like, they sang, oh, come all ye faithful. That's us because we're the only ones here. And No. They didn't sing, but they worshiped. They saw him accurately. They responded appropriately. Because what happens when we worship is it gives us an accurate view of who God is, changes our lives, which then casts out our false fears. You want to know how you can increase your hope? You want to know how, how you can have less fear in your life? Is increase your view of who God is. He's a big God. And what you see, even in Peter's life, if you start looking at his life, is that when Peter lost hope, he was a coward. When Peter was full of hope, he was courageous. And if you're familiar with this story in the Gospels, you know that he's a big talker. He had false bravado all the time. And so, you know, Jesus says, you're all going to deny me. And you should never correct Jesus. When Jesus says something, it happens 100% of the time. But he, Peter goes, these losers might do it, but I'm not. That's a paraphrase. But that's what, basically what he says in the story. He goes, these guys are out. I will never deny you. I'm with you, even to the death. And Jesus is like, you're embarrassing yourself, Peter. Listen, um, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But then oftentimes what we do is we jump to his denial. You remember, you know what actually happens next? They're out in the garden. And Peter, he does it. He's sticking up for Jesus. He pulls a sword out, cuts a guy's ear off. Think about that for a second. Who knew that Peter was a samurai soldier? Because that takes some skill. Like, he can't just cut an ear? Like, you just cut an ear off? Like, I could chop somebody in the head. If you give me a sword, somebody came at me, chop you in the head. But I imagine that Peter, between that moment with Jesus and the garden, that he's out at night, like all the disciples go to sleep, and he's like, I'm working on my sword skills. Yeah, I'm getting ready. Like, not nunchuck skills. He's got sword skills. So he's like flipping the thing around. The guy comes up, he's a soldier. Jesus, or Peter cuts his ear off, ears popping off. I don't know how it bleeds, but there's blood coming out of there. Then Jesus has to come up, you know, pop the guy's ear back on. Peter cut it out. And then he goes to the high priest's courtyard, and a little girl comes up to him, says, weren't you with Jesus? Oh, I don't know, I've never seen that guy. Now he's a coward. All right, now Jesus is about to go. To, I wonder if Peter thought to himself, all that stuff he said about being turned over to the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and being killed is about to happen, and I don't want to be killed. The guy that I've left everything to follow is about to die. I've lost all hope. He's a coward. But I already read to you in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, he stands before a crowd of thousands of people, some of whom are the very ones, maybe the people that actually put the nails in Jesus' hands and says, you killed God. How could he be that bold? What happened? You know what happened between Acts chapter 2 and verse 36? And him denying Jesus is John chapter 21. And what happens in John chapter 21 is that Peter is restored. And I want to tell you something today. Jesus is still in the business of restoration. And so I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you've done, what's been done to you, what's going on in your life, what's going on in your work, what's going on in your marriage. Jesus restores. If you still have air in your lungs, you're still walking on this earth, God still has a plan for you. And he can restore anything. And he restores Peter, and Peter sees God accurately, and now his courageous faith is worship in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 5, what happens is he gets flogged because he was told, stop talking about Jesus. He said, we can't do that. We're not going to be able to do that. Keep talking about Jesus. They flog him. Then he goes out, and he's, then he's singing songs. Read it. He's praising God because he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's an expression. His songs are an expression of worship. Seeing God accurately, then responding appropriately. So how do we respond? Well, we didn't have time today to go through this whole passage. This is an incredible passage. You should read. Go back up to, to verse 8 and read verses 8 through 12. And what, and what Peter says is, he says, if somebody's evil to you, bless them. The way Jesus says it in the New Testament is, if somebody persecutes you, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. 
And I think, what is courage? What does courage really look like for us? And I think there's a lot of, not only is there a lot of false fear in our culture, there's a lot of false courage right now. There's a lot of keyboard warriors out there. They're really courageous with the things that they'll post on their social media, but their lives don't back it up. That's false. And so you're going to tell everybody else how to live and what to do if you don't live it out. That's phony. I was reading an article this week, somebody forwarded to me about this very thing. I didn't call it keyboard courage, but that's the idea. And the article was talking about how we long for the the endorphins that come when we get likes and retweets and some of those things. And usually our friends that we're sending these things to all agree with us already. And so we're posting these things out there and we're kind of like the guy in The Wizard of Oz, is what the article says. We hide behind a curtain and we've got a screen persona. And we all know that everybody puts a better persona on their social media than everywhere else. But, But listen to what they call it. They call it cheap conviction. It says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned of a gospelless, repentless version of Christianity he called cheap grace. But a truthless, loveless version of Christian activism might also be called cheap conviction. He goes on to explain what that is. Cheap conviction is what it looks like when we're passionate to win people's attention rather than winning them. Cheap conviction sends tweets tearing down brothers and sisters in Christ while sitting comfortably at home without the slightest intention to serve or die for Jesus' church. It's not talking about a building, not talking about a gathering. It's talking about the people that Jesus died for when it says the Jesus church there. It draws hard lines in articles and emails while being ambivalent about personal sins, their own personal sins. It's what happens when we take an online stand against culture while our lives are loveless, riskless, graceless, and friendless. It's counterfeit courage. Anger and gracelessness are often signs of a heart that is tangled up in fear. And so what does real courage look like? I'll tell you what real courage looks like. It doesn't look like me even telling you some courageous statement from the stage because I can say that to you and I have a relationship with you. Do you know what it looks like? It looks like when we have a real relationship with each other. And I look you in the eye and not some public persona, whether it's on a stage or whether it's in a social media post and it's not typing some strongly worded thing, but it's living this stuff out. And so some of you may have a person that you have in mind when I read a quote like that. You're like, yeah, this person I know is doing that. I need to send this two-minute section of the sermon to them so they can hear that. No, no, no. What if you had said... What if instead you invited them out to coffee and instead of trying to convince them that they're angry and loveless, you loved them? What if you listened to them? I'm going to guess, like in a hypothetical world, probably not this world, in a hypothetical world there's probably people that both claim to love Jesus that have different views on lots of things. Hypothetical world, not happening right now. Politics, virus, whatever. And, And when one of them posts, the other one gets mad at that person. Like, maybe not you. What if you, what if you took that person out to lunch and instead of trying to convince them to your side, you tried to get to know why is it you think the way that you do? And you don't say that. You don't go, why do you think the way you do? But it's like, help me understand why you think these things. And you got to know their heart. And maybe they would see in you something different and maybe they'd ask about it. What if maybe you have, maybe you've got some gay friends or relatives or siblings or kids and instead of when they post a picture of them and their, their partner on social media and you go and tell all your Christians, I can't believe they're doing this. What if instead you started thinking about an intentional plan to demonstrate love to them? What if, what if people experience something they've never experienced before? Maybe they'd ask questions they never asked before. Maybe they'd see an enticing hope in us. I hope so. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to gather in your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, for calling us to yourself, to transforming us, to changing us. God, will you change us? Will you transform us to be more and more like your son, Jesus? 
I pray for every person that hears these words, that hears this prayer right now, that knows you, that loves you, that you'd make us a little bit more like you today. That you'd stretch us, that you'd grow us, that you'd challenge us. Father, I pray if there's anybody who doesn't have this hope, that they would know that they can. They believe in their hearts that you raised Jesus from the dead. They confess with their mouths that you are Lord. They'd surrender their lives to you, that you'd, you'd rescue them from their sin. You'd save them from their sin, save them from themselves, and give them the gift of eternal life. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.